This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we continue your word, looking at your word in the book of Acts, we just pray that you help us to be able to focus on what is being said, and more importantly, to hear rightly the word of God, so that our hearts may be touched, and our lives would really know and believe and fear you, and trust in your grace in Jesus Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, during the recent Project Timothy talks, the speaker Brian Chappell said that in America, I don't know where he got this number from, but he said two-thirds of church-going teenagers, when they go to college, or what is we call university, will stop going to church. Not one-third, not one-half, but two-thirds of church-going teenagers, when they go to university in America, will stop going to church. And I remember that situation when I read this book that I referred to before, called English Lessons, about this girl who had gone from America to go to Oxford to study there, and how when she went overseas to university, her faith began to have crumbling effects, right? She was uh, failing in her faith, she had doubts, she had fears. And in the book, she said that she asked God for a sign. She wanted a sign of reassurance. Now, was that the right course of action? Was that the answer to her problems? Was that the right solution to which her problem was looking for. Because we all know the struggles of faith. Uh, you know, we have terrible job situations, illnesses, we have sick parents, uh, we know of other people who struggle with these things, and where do we turn to during these times of trouble? Do we ask God for a sign? Now over the last few months we've been going through the book of Acts, and Jesus had promised his disciples and commanded them that they were to bring as witnesses his word and his testimony from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we've been seeing happening in the book of Acts. So if you've been looking at the the map, right? So if you look at the next slide, you can see that the gospel has spread from its beginnings in Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria and then to Caesarea, the first, first Gentiles, and out to the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. And last week we saw how on the second missionary journey of Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ had entered into modern day Europe, into Macedonia. So today we're going to focus on two cities of Paul's journey, second missionary journey, which is up here, which is Corinth and Ephesus. So Corinth and Ephesus came after Athens that we looked at last week. Now, Athens was a very impressive city, but actually Corinth and Ephesus were even more impressive in their day. So Athens was estimated to have a population of about 10,000 people, but Corinth was estimated to have a population of 750,000 people in its peak. It was like the commercial trade center of that part of the world. So if you look at the map, you can see see Corinth? Corinth was sort of situated like in the Singapore of Asia. Right? So it was like, if you want to do trade, it was the perfect way to go over land from the north to the south. And if you wanted to cut across, there was this narrow channel in which you could sort of take a shortcut and go from 
the west to the east or east to the west. So this was a, a rich city and it was full of very proud people. But not only was it a proud city of rich people, but it was also a place where there was a lot of sexual immorality. It was known for its immorality. So you know, like in uh, Rio de Janeiro today, you know, they have that big statue of Jesus overlooking the city of Rio, right? If you, if you watch the Olympics, you know, they always show the statue of Jesus overlooking the city of Rio. Well, in Corinth, they didn't have a, a big statue of Jesus on a cross overlooking the city. They had the temple of Aphrodite, of Venus, the goddess of love overlooking the city. So if you have the goddess of love overlooking the city, then you'd expect this city to be full of, not love, but prostitutes. A temple servants or slaves of Aphrodite, and they would go out into the city where they would ply their wares, and there was lots of sexual morality. So much so that the name Corinth became associated with sexual immorality. To Corinthiosomai literally means to have sexual morality. To be a Corinthioseste was a prostitute. So Corinth in that day would be like the Las Vegas of today, I suppose, the city of sin. right? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. So the question is, as we come to this great city, this mega city of riches and sexual morality, how would the gospel come and be received by the city. Well, we begin in chapter 18, verse 1 to 7, and it begins by this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest saying, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who had heard Paul believed and were baptized. So Paul came from Athens down south to Corinth and he met a couple called Aquila and Priscilla. And they were very hospitable. They let him stay with them. Every Sabbath, once a week, he went to the synagogue where the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks gathered to debate, to reason, and to persuade them. To get them to accept that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ. But he only preached once a week, right, every Sabbath. But when Silas and Timothy's, Timothy, his companions, came down from Macedonia to Corinth, you notice that Paul was then freed up to preach exclusively. He went from preaching once a week to preaching daily because he no longer had to support himself as a tent maker. And his daily preaching was so effective that we read that the synagogue ruler and his entire household became persuaded to become Christians. 
But as we've been looking through the book of Acts, we see that whenever there's a revival, there's also a riot. Well, the old synagogue ruler may have been saved, but the new synagogue rulers became abusive to Paul. We don't know whether they were physically abusive, they wanted to beat him up or throw stones at him, or whether they just said in a loud voice, shut up and sit down. For whatever reason, Paul felt that he had to leave the synagogue and go next door to a Gentile's house, Justice's house. But not before he gave them the warning in verse 6. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now, the imagery here is from Ezekiel chapter 33, which is a very famous Ezekiel of the watchmen. God had appointed Ezekiel as the watchman to, 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 and said, look, you are like a watchman who warns the people of the city. So the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and when he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. So what Paul is saying here was that the stakes of rejecting the word of God was very high. Because the word of God, the word of the Lord Jesus, warns of judgment. If you reject that word, your blood is in your head. But his responsibility was to warn people, because if not, he would be responsible. So what he was saying to the Jews was, the gospel of Jesus Christ is warning people to beware of the judgment to come. Jesus is the way to be saved. He is the Christ. If you reject it, your blood is on your own head. And he went next door and he kept on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in preaching there daily and often and consistently, many Christians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So here we see the beginning of the early church in Corinth. But the question is, what made this place a church? If you think about it, it was just a synagogue to begin with, and then they went next door to someone's house. For Paul, the church building, so to speak, was just a big rain shelter or a sun shelter which allowed him to preach and teach, to reason and to persuade people of the word of the Lord so that people believed and were baptized. The synagogue was a church and it stopped being a church when Paul left and took the gospel with him and he preached next door and people believed and followed him and were baptized. So I think that one of the first things that we see here in this passage is that what makes a church a church is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is important for us today because one of the problems 
is that for many people, they forget that that's what makes the church the church. The church is not the building. The church is a big rain shelter. It's a big sun shelter where the word of God can be preached and reasoned and persuaded. See, one of the things I sometimes hear and read is that people want less word of the Lord in church. Right? They want shorter sermons, more illustrations, less Bible study. The youth group wants more games and activities. But Paul went from preaching once a week in the synagogue to daily to persuade people of the word of God and they believed and were baptized. And that's what made the church the church. That was what he was focused on. That was what was a distinguishing mark of the early church in Corinth. So we should never be tempted to lose the word of God in the church. Because without the word of the Lord being preached and taught and believed and followed, there is no church. So then, as we read this passage in verse 12, uh, sorry, verse 9 onwards, uh, something strange happens to Paul in the run of his ministry. So in verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews in Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. And then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Now last week, God spoke to Paul in a vision too. Do you remember? So when Paul was in Asia Minor, he wanted to stay there and consolidate his ministry. But God sent him a vision of a man in Macedonia, right, up there in Europe, speaking to him in a vision saying, help, we need help, come over here. So Paul moved from Asia Minor to Europe. This time, God sends Paul a vision, and it's not go, but stay. The reason is because, uh, if you remember last week, when Paul was in Thessalonica and Berea, when the Jews rose up in hostility against Paul, remember they had this big riot? What did Paul do? He fled from Berea and Corinth, oh, sorry, Berea and Thessalonica down south to Athens. But this time, God says, stay, don't go. Keep on speaking, keep on preaching the word of God, keep on preaching Jesus, do not be silent. And the reason is, because I will protect you, I have many people in this city. Now, that's really amazing, because when we came to Corinth, we asked the question, how will God's word be accepted in this rich, sexually immoral, proud people. 
How will it be accepted among them? Well, it doesn't matter what Paul did. It doesn't matter what they did. Jesus had already said, I have many people in this city. Before they even knew they were going to be saved, Jesus had already marked them out to be saved. All that was required was for Paul to stay in the city, which he did for another year and a half, to keep preaching the word of Jesus faithfully. And when these people, which Jesus had chosen, had come in contact with the word, they would believe and they would be saved and they would be baptized. That's what it says, I have many in the city. So the business of Paul was to preach the word and not be silent. Jesus' business was to pick those people and bring them in contact with the gospel and they would be saved. And I think that's a very fundamental understanding. Our business, the business of the church, is to preach the word of Jesus faithfully. Jesus' business is to bring the people that he has chosen into contact with the gospel and they are saved, baptized and believe. Now it's quite interesting because uh, a couple of years ago I visited a couple of friends in um, Sydney in Australia and they told us how they went to church and we thought, oh, that's really great. You know, they're going to church. Must be, you know, must be, we don't have to worry about them anymore because they're not Christian. So we asked them, you know, what do you do when you go to church? They said, oh, we go to this church and it's in a wonderful, beautiful old building with stained glass and, and okay, but what do you actually do when you go in there? I said, well, when you go in there, it's really, you know, it's really spiritual. We, We light candles when we go to the church and then we pray and we listen to very spiritual music. And then every week, uh, somebody comes forward from a different faith and shares their faith to us. And then I was like, okay, but where's the sermon? What's the pastor doing? Where's the word of Jesus Christ in all this? But there was none. That's what they do every week. It's not like just once in a while. This is what they do all the time. Well, we couldn't stop worrying about our friends now, isn't it? Because they are going to a church where without the word of Jesus Christ being preached, how are they going to be saved? You're not saved by lighting candles and listening to, to New Age music, right? I mean, I can listen to that on my Spotify already. I don't need to go to church to listen to that. And, and you're not going to be saved by having random people just coming up and sharing about their faith. You need to have the word of Jesus Christ, which they wasn't in this church. But as we see in this passage, the business that Paul was into, the business of the church, was to preach the word of God faithfully, not to keep quiet, and the ones that Jesus had chosen would be saved as a result. Now, Paul, after spending a very long time in the city of Corinth, verse 11, a year and a half, which is a very long time for Paul in his mission work, then moves on to Ephesus, but not before he makes a lot of detours, right? But we see that actually, before we come to actually doing real ministry in Ephesus, there are two groups of people that we are introduced to, Apollos and the twelve disciples. And they are quite unique, because they seem to have a particular deficiency. There's a problem with them. 
In verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there was or there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Lord Jesus. When Paul had placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. So we have two groups of people here, Paulus and the twelve disciples, and both of them are deficient in terms of their understanding of baptism. They had only received or taught the baptism of John. Now, John was the one who prepared the way before Jesus. He was like the preparer. He was like the one who came before Jesus, the herald who was telling people, make way for the king, the king Jesus to come. And the, one of the ways he did it was to baptize Jesus. So the baptism that John practiced was a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of Jesus. So this is what it says in Mark chapter 1. So John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you understand this passage, then you understand what was happening with Apollos and the twelve disciples. Apollos, it said, had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. He knew the way of the Lord Jesus Christ and he taught about Jesus accurately. But his teaching, his doctrine, had one lack. He was lacking in terms of the teaching of baptism. Right? He, he, he missed that class or whatever. Right? He only taught the baptism of John. So he was only teaching the preliminary, provisional, temporary, preparatory baptism of John 
But that was past, you know, that's obsolete. Now that Jesus has come, he should have been teaching about the baptism of Jesus and the reception of the Holy Spirit. So when you Priscilla and Aquila, you remember who those two characters are? Who were they? They were the people who put Paul up, right? They were the hospitable people. They must have run some Airbnb chain. They were moving all over the region. Right? They were going from Corinth to Ephesus. And when Ephesus, they had another house or whatever. And they invited right, Apollos to come and say, Look, you know, Apollos, you're a good teacher, but you're missing and lacking this one thing. You, you, your, your baptism doctrine is not right. And they taught him and instructed him on the way of God. Now, right after this, as we read, Paul also makes his way to Ephesus and he meets these 12 disciples. But these 12 disciples have an even greater deficiency than Apollos. Because, you know, Apollos was just teaching the wrong thing. But the 12 disciples, they were experiencing the wrong baptism. They never had been baptized into Jesus Christ. They had only known the baptism of John the baptism of repentance. And that's why they had never received the Holy Spirit. So after Paul diagnosed the problem, he baptizes them and they receive the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is when you put these two sets of stories together, why are they here? I mean, what's the point? I think the point is that it just shows that all the people, the Christians and Paul, were instructing each other from the word of Jesus Christ, of the way of God, and helping one another grow in Christ through their deficiencies, through their lacks. I remember a pastor once said that his goal in life was to be unemployed. His goal in life was to be unemployed. And the reason why he said that was because he said that in the church, it wasn't just the pastor's role to preach and teach. It was to everybody, every member every man and woman in the congregation, to preach and teach, to gospel one another. See, Aquila and Priscilla, they could have just said, ah, this Apollos, he's got it all mixed up. right? I should just tell Paul, and when Paul comes, Paul can set him straight. But they didn't do that. They went to Apollos, and Apollos, as we read here, he had a very thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. He was very knowledgeable in the way of preaching about Jesus. But they still went to him and they spoke to him and said, Hey, you know, brother, I think you got it wrong here. And they helped him see his lack and he humbly received it and he became uh, more mature in his faith. And Paul did the same thing as the 12 disciples and that's how the church developed in Ephesus. And I think that that's what we should be doing too, isn't it? Because people say it takes a village to raise a child. But actually it takes a whole church to raise a child of God. You know, all of us here should be preaching and teaching and gospeling one another. It's not just, uh, you know, the Bible study leader's responsibility or the pastor's responsibility. We are all here to help one another grow in Christ. So I shared with you um, the story at the beginning and the introduction of the book by that girl who went to Oxford who had the crisis of faith, and she was looking for a sign from God, the sign never came. Right? The sign never came. She kept asking a sign from God, but it never came. But what God did send her was another Christian. And this Christian uh, was very helpful. 
This Christian person came alongside her, shared with her faith, read the Bible, explained to her her doubts, and it put her back on track in her faith. And she compared it uh, with this wonderful image where in, in Oxford, people are riding bicycles all the time, right? It's just like people are riding bicycles. Everybody's got bicycles. And she said that her, someone stole the headlamp of her bicycle. You know, there's, there's theft in Oxford. Right? She was very appalled that people steal things in Oxford. So someone stole the headlights off her bicycle. So when she was riding in the dark, it was really hard and dangerous because it's, you know, it's, the streetlights are not very bright and there might be pebbles or potholes around. So she said that this Christian friend used to ride in front of her and use the headlights of their own bicycle. And that's what she said it was like when this Christian friend came alongside her, opened up the Bible with her, shared the faith with her, helped her see her way back to God. It was like having someone riding a bicycle in front of her with the headlights, showing her the way forward. And I think that's a really good illustration because that's what we are meant to do. We're supposed to come together to, in our times of need or whatever and shine the light ahead for each of us so that we can go forward. Anyway, so this is the, the first, the 12 disciples and Apollos were the first, uh, I guess, Christians uh, that came to Ephesus. But Ephesus itself was different from Corinth and, uh, uh, and Athens in that it was a very, um, a place of a lot of black magic. It was a place of a cult and superstition. There was a lot of magic there. So we read in the last part of our section that something uh, interesting happened which didn't happen in the other cities. Because it recalls here that God started doing these extraordinary miracles through Paul in verse 11. Um, And as a result, some of the, the inhabitants of Ephesus wanted, in a sense, to have what, what Paul had. He, they wanted his magical power. Remember, this was a city of black magic. Right? So they thought, okay, Paul can do this, you know, this wonderful thing. I want to do it as well. Remember uh, much earlier on, Simon the Sorcerer, if you Google it or look in your church, uh, in your uh, directories for your Bibles, he's much earlier in the book of Acts, Simon the Sorcerer, you can look it up. He also wanted that power. The power to do magic in the name of Jesus. So in verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, maybe they're doing it for money, don't know, right? Tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. They were probably... Obviously very famous people, these seven sons of Siva. So one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. 
When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia, Achaia. And after I've been there, I want to visit Rome also. So you see what was happening here. Very logical, right? City of black magic, city of a cult. So what do you do? Someone comes preaching a, 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 the name of a new god. This uh, disciple obviously has great power. So I want to enlist the power of his god in my work, in my mission. So I start using the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul is preaching, you know, be cast out. Only problem is, the evil spirit is so powerful that it beats seven of them up. And they all run out naked. And everybody hears about this. So there is a lesson to be learned here, which obviously the people in Ephesus learn. That you can't use the name of Jesus and enlist his power unless you believe in Jesus and are his servant. There is no power without the reality of Jesus in that person's life. So, I'm sure many of you watch uh, or know of vampire movies and things like that. You know, you always see people, you know, they hold up this wooden cross right, against the vampire. Or, you know, they spray holy water or something or use the name of Jesus. But, but actually it's nonsense, right? Because it's just a piece of wood shaped on the cross. It's just water. It's just some vibration in the air which comes to the name of Jesus. Unless Jesus is really in that person and he is a servant of Jesus, like Paul, then there is no power in that person. So in our responsive reading in Luke chapter 11, Jesus promised that he is the strong man, or the stronger man that overpowers the strong man, and takes possession of all the strong man's things. But that power cannot be used like magic. Right? And they were, you know, it's like the Ephesians, after they saw what happened to the seven sons of Scriva, realized that you can't make Jesus serve you. The power only comes when you serve Jesus. And He is your God and your King. And the Holy Spirit resides in you. So what happens after they hear about what happens to the seven sons of Shriva? is that instead of using Jesus, they believe in Jesus. And the belief in Jesus manifests itself in confession of their evil deeds and repentance by burning their magical scrolls publicly. Now apparently these magical scrolls are very expensive. Um, if you go to the internet and you do a Google search, there are these magical scrolls which you can find in, in, in museums all over the world. Right, Egyptian ones, Babylonian ones, Ephesian ones, and like there are these scrolls with magic names and incarnations, whatever. And the people of Ephesus believed in Jesus, confessed their sins, repented so much so that these magical scrolls, which cost lots of money, they burned. They burned fifty thousand drachmas worth, which apparently is worth fifty thousand silver coins. Okay, now that sounds like a. I mean, even in today's world, that's a lot of money, right? But that shows how they have gone from using Jesus as a magical incarnation to believing in Jesus and serving Jesus 
and actually being totally reformed in their life. And verse 20 is a very important verse, right? So verse 20 summarizes what happens as a result. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. See, before, when Paul preached, they just listened. But now, when Paul preached, it touched the heart. It had power over them and it transformed them so that they lived repentant lives which were seen in the way that they went from magic all the way to being completely obedient to Jesus. So, the speaker at the Project Timothy in the morning said, you know, two-thirds of Christian children who go to college stop going to church. And he said one of the problems is that for them, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ is just head knowledge. It has no power over them. It hasn't touched their heart. So that's why you see them and they still sleep around like you know all their other friends. They still get drunk and they still swear. And it says, but when the word of the Lord has power over you, then you see that transformation and you are able then to to live a life regardless of your circumstances and your environment for Christ in fear of God. Because when you fear God and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then when you hear the word, it is not just words that penetrate the brain but actually touches the heart. So the most obvious application for us is we've heard the word of Jesus but are we still superstitious right do we still i mean because you know we're not black magic like ephesians right but 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 we still live in a culture where there's superstition there's magic there's idols there's stuff on the i mean even my, my my house in the past we used to have all these things up on the wall right my dad's place but as christians we don't have to be superstitious anymore we don't have to worry about the number four right we don't have to have idols in the house. We don't have to have lucky charms or amulets. Because if the word of Jesus Christ has power, because you fear God and He is your Savior and Lord, then you know that He is the strong man who's overcome not just these spirits, but Satan himself. Why do you have to rely on these superstitious things or lucky charms or you have to have magic? So my neighbor downstairs is having renovation. Actually, it seems like my neighbors are forever having renovation. I also don't know. The time when they don't have renovation is a very rare time, okay? Because there's a forever drilling and knocking on the wall, whatever. So we met the mother coming up on the lift one day. So she said, oh, yeah, we're having a renovation. But we, we can't move in to, to later because Hungry Ghost Mouth is coming up. And I was thinking, well, okay, that's, that's fair. But if you're a Christian, would you still say the same thing? Would it still make a difference to you, Hungry Ghost Month? Because if it does, then actually the Word of God has not exercised its power on you. Belief in Jesus Christ has not exercised its power on you. It's, no, it's just your, in your head, but it's not actually in your heart. You haven't known the full power of Jesus Christ in you. So in conclusion, I, I once went to a church where... Um, there's this huge Bible at the lectern right at the very front. It's like this mega Bible, bigger than my, my, uh, my, this thing that the clipboard, right? But the sad thing was, even though the word of the law was 
at the front of the lectern, very symbolically and everything, there was no word of the Lord in the church during the sermon. When I was in boarding school, when I went there when I was 12, I used to visit a family very regularly on weekends, and they were Christians, they were trying to evangelize me, I wasn't a Christian, and they had a Bible there. But as I stayed there, I also realized that they had a whole stash of pornographic videos under the TV in a locked drawer, right? while the Bible was up there, the pornographic videos are down there. I've been to Christian houses where they have religious idols and symbols. So the word of the Lord is there, right? The word of the Lord is there in the Bible. But that's where it is. It is. That's all it is, right? It's in the Bible, but it's not in the lives of the people living around it. It's not spoken, it's not preached, and it's not heard, and it's not convicted. But as we looked in this passage, as Paul has gone through Corinth and Ephesus, and the rich, immoral city of Corinth and the black magic city of Ephesus, what built the church was the word of God, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, being preached and reasoned and persuaded on a regular, consistent basis. On a daily basis, Paul did it. It was built because people in the church came together and gospeled and preached the word of God to each other. They shone the light to each other. And the word of God, as we saw in Ephesus, was regarded with power as it impacted people's lives. So as we look at today's passage, I hope that each and every one of us will take to heart what we've learned today and really not just listen to the word of, of, of the Lord Jesus in our ears and have it reside in our minds and just know doctrine, but that the word of the Lord would have power in our hearts and really transform our lives so that the belief in Jesus will really be shown in everything we do uh, as we confess and repent of the things that are displeasing to God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your word which shows uh, your gospel spreading to Corinth and to Ephesus. As uh, Jesus, your son, had already chosen the very people in Corinth, we thank you that Paul preached your, your word and reasoned and persuaded of the, the, the way of God so clearly to the people there so that your people were saved. We pray for ourselves that we may learn the lessons and avoid the temptation of losing and rejecting the word of Jesus Christ, that the blood, our blood, would not be on our own heads. And dear Father, we pray that we too would preach and gospel the word to each other, to shine the light into each other's lives, and to be able to show what is lacking if it is lacking in our lives. And that that word may powerfully work in us so that we will not be superstitious or to tolerate magic in our lives. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.